0: Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Dr. Connie Dalton is clinical director of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and a clinical professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa. She also served as the regional clinical lead for the Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Program at the Royal Ottawa Hospital from 2018 to 2020. Over the past 15 years, Dr. Dalton has delivered numerous CBT workshops and training seminars in CBT and has actively been involved in the supervision and consultation of mental health professionals in CBT, including physicians, nurses, social workers, and psychologists at various stages of training. She has expertise in the treatment of mood and anxiety disorders and has helped to develop and establish CBT programming at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center. Dr. Dalton is currently involved in the development of innovative methods for the delivery of CBT within the community, including home and community-based services, group therapy programs, virtual reality therapy, and intensive day treatment programs for mood and anxiety disorders, OCD, and PTSD. All right, Dr. Connie Dalton, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. You are very welcome. It's a long overdue uh, conversation. We had a chance to chat a little over a year ago when COVID first hit, but I don't think we've had a chance to connect on the podcast since, so this is going to be great. Um, I'm really delighted to be able to sit down with you today to talk about uh, and have this really important conversation about both some of the challenges, but really also the opportunities within the mental health care system, certainly within Canada, but I'm very sure a lot of these dynamics apply beyond as well. Something we don't talk about nearly enough is the emotional toll that working in the current system can have, not only for us personally, but also in the way in which we practice, you know, which unfortunately, as I think we'll talk about, can become a self-fulfilling prophecy as far as the emotional toll goes, but also the impact on client care. Finally, Connie, based on your really diverse and and depth of experience both in public and private settings, which at, at some points in your career has been at the same time, I'm really interested to get your perspective on what innovations you see on the horizon to address some of the challenges that we're, we're going to talk about. Excellent. Okay, so Connie, can we start by maybe painting a picture of the current situation for therapists in either public or private settings with respect to the kind of demand that they're facing, maybe even within the context of COVID, the kind of community resources that exist or, or don't exist, and our ability to refer clients to specialty or intensive services when required?
1: So I've been, I think, yeah, working now for 14 years in um, in different settings. I always think it's about five years, but when I look, <laughs> it's actually 14 years. Um, and I've worked in both the public sphere and hospital settings and also been in private practice for the past 11 years. And I think if we look at the, the current kind of context for you know the need for mental health services, I think it's... Since, since I started anyway, the need's have always been quite high. Um, I think I've noticed over the past... Couple of years, and maybe that's connected to COVID, but I think it was trending this way anyway. That the demand seems to really be increasing, uh, especially maybe in the context of, and maybe this is across Canada, but in in you know the Champlain region where we are, the need seems to be uh, increasing exponentially. And I think across both settings, um, it, it's we always kind of end up in the same place. We have limited resources. Um, high demand for needs. And and often, if we do need to refer on, we're, we're actually looking for services. So kind of a scarcity of resources as well, uh, in terms of specialty types of programming.
0: Yeah, Connie, that really resonates for me as well. I've had a very similar experience where I believe I started in private practice in 2011, although I've been working in mental health since 2004. And over that time, I've seen a real rise in both the awareness of mental health, but also the demand and they're probably related, right? Like the more that we're talking about mental health as a society, the more that people are are willing to come, come forward. But the, I guess the challenge is people are coming forward for help and there's campaigns like, you know, bell, let's talk and all that kind of stuff, but there's not the back end resources to be able to meet the demand, especially for those really intensive cases, which are, can be, you know, require a lot of resources across different silos within healthcare. So it feels increasingly like a uh, a frustrating system to to work in. And again, I've been in mental health since two thousand four in one way, shape, or another. It you know, mental health has always been considered an orphan of the healthcare system, with a disproportionately uh, smaller amount of resources devoted to mental health, despite being a major cause of disability and really making almost every health condition worse. That you know, when we know and you know, when depression and heart disease co-occur, the outcomes are way worse than when there's ha- heart disease on its own. From your perspective, what are the stereotypes or perceptions at play that continue to perpetuate uh, this problem? And you know, from your position of having occupied positions both within the public and private setting, do you see any evidence of this getting any better?
1: So the the first part around myths and stereotypes, probably many that are still functioning in terms of like you know the medical model. I think probably in many cases, and maybe just, you know, for the general population, but also healthcare providers themselves, or there's this idea that for mental health difficulties, uh, that the preferred treatment is going to be medically based, um, pharmacologically based, um, that you know, it may not even be at the front of someone's mind that that therapy could be effective. So I think maybe that the medical model, which is tends to be, you know, not prolonged kind of extended treatment, but more come in, assess, get treatment, go. Maybe that's kind of been a piece that's limited the development of, of services is is kind of that we've conceptualized mental health within that framework instead of a more biopsychosocial framework. And uh, maybe that's paused or led to less development over time. That would be one piece. I mean, there's like there's probably there's so so many myths if we talk about mental health. So, you know, it's about weakness. It's about um, people. If they just try harder, they can get better. Um, Treatment actually doesn't work. There's not a lot of evidence to do that or there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that it will work. So I think there's it's probably inundated throughout our um, our societal kind of way of thinking about mental health. And it creates all of these barriers, I think, to developing um, better, more streamlined services.
0: It's been really interesting to watch the pendulum swing, right? Where I think we started off with that real sort of stigmatized model that, you know, it's all in people's heads or they need to buck up or they need to sort of get their act together. And then, you know, I've seen the pendulum swing the other way where we talk about mental illness exclusively as sort of a disease and, and sort of very organically based and that, you know, medication is sort of the way forward. And I think either version of that, uh, I think either version of that model really does a disservice to people because it doesn't capture enough of the nuance. Like, you know, personally, when I'm helping someone with a difficulty, I don't want them to walk away with a narrative that it's simply because of a quote unquote chemical imbalance. I mean, number one, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of great evidence for that. But number two, it really robs them of a sense of agency with respect to being able to affect the problem and maybe to, you know, as a platform to build some insight around how unbeknownst to them, patterns and coping may be contributing to a problem. But that's actually great news when you have that insight because that means you can change something right? Yeah. You, you, you in part want to be uh, embedded within your own, within your own difficulty, because that means you can do something about it. So I think at either end of the spectrum, it's really disempowering and, and landing somewhere in the middle might be ultimately the the way forward. Like, yes, biological factors matter. Of course, no one's going to deny that, but so do the choices that, w- that we make. And so does, does the way that we orient to stressors uh, in our life. And you know, there's many complicated factors that can push people's coping in different directions. And certainly I'm not advocating that people are at fault for their experience, but we need to be, we need to acknowledge the the, the nuance and incredible complexity around mental health to get anywhere. I think.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely. I think this balanced, this balanced kind of perspective, which maybe we're not that good at in general, we, we kind of swing from one extreme to the other. So I, I, I agree entirely. And to be able to see mental health from that that middle stance that stance where we consider the medical pieces the biopsychosocial pieces and see it in all of its complexity and then, and then develop and deliver services based on that i think is where we would want to where we would want to land but we we kind of i think um, typically look for easier kind of simpler solutions to things and so i think that can get us in trouble because you know it's not simple <laughs> it, it it is more complicated. And even though we have excellent treatment models, um, I don't think we're at a place yet where we've really considered all those complexities.
0: No, I totally agree. And I think just as a society in general, a lot of us want the easy button like you're referring to, right? Both therapists as well as, as clients, right? Like a very co- common question that when clients come in is how long is this going to take? And you can really hear the urgency. And of course, we all get that, right? Like no one wants to be experiencing psychological distress for any longer than they, than they have to but sometimes that urgency to bring the problem to the ground is actually the very dynamic that keeps it going in the first place so i think a lot of it is educating about how complicated life is in general and then having a, co- a conversation about mental health within the context of a understood complexity of life just in general like it's not mm-hmm. it's not easy at the best of times in many ways and many of the challenges that clients present with can be understood within the normal spectrum of life not always not always, but again, to, to simply shove it into a disease model does not do it justice and doesn't accurately uh, map the problem.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think also if we we look at that, I get. I think this fits into the idea of a myth or a stereotype. Is the idea, and and I think mental health professionals have have perpetuated this um, as well as this idea that one size fits all. That you know, if you're going to come in for treatment, it's going to be seeing somebody. Uh, if you're, if you're talking about therapy, you're going to see somebody once a week, it's going to be an hour of treatment, and then you're going to come to treatment for a, a designated period of time, or maybe even, maybe it isn't even a designated period of time, it's it's once a week for as long as it takes to get better, and then, um, and then that's kind of what we offer to everybody, and I think that's, that's um that's you, we would never think about any other type of treatment in a medical or mental health system in that way. We would, you know, it, it's always about what kind of dose is needed to help someone get better. And in mental health, we often don't think of it that way. We think of it as one size fits all and then, um, and, and offer it that way. So there that kind of speaks to the complexity as well is, is different people coming in with different concerns, um, need different types of treatments at different doses, different intensity levels. And it, I think that's kind of a maybe a new idea that that this is how we would deliver that.
0: That's such a great point. And I think we're really going to touch on that as we move through the conversation. Connie, how much do you think the depiction of therapy on TV and in movies really sort of is a, is a force that we're up against as far as that sort of one size fits all versus individually tailored solutions? Right. Because therapy is often depicted as this very passive, drawn out process. Well, how, what, how do you think things are going? You know, wh- What do you think about that? Like always flipping it back to the, to the client. I don't know if any other sort of health services are, are quite as depicted in our pop culture as maybe therapy is. Or, and how much do you think that impacts the way that the expectations that clients might have coming in the door with respect to accessing the services that we provide?
1: Yeah, I would, I would, I would assume that that has a, a a pretty big impact in terms of, but not, not only for clients coming through the door, also for, for other mental health professionals that are referring or this idea that therapy involves sitting down, um, um, speaking about a, a problem, the therapist kind of just reflecting back and then the session is over is, is, um, I think that's generally how it's probably depicted and, um, you know, that's very I mean, maybe in, in some cases of therapy, that would be the approach, um, but more active focused types of therapy that are focused kind of on um, helping people, you know, increase functioning, live a, a meaningful life. They're, they're often very active based. It's um, and it's very focused on skills. It's always supportive. But I think that depiction probably does a disservice for the complexity again of what therapy includes. And the fact that there's actually it kind of the way it's depicted at times can make it look like therapy is about providing support and listening, which it is. <laughs> but there's so many other pieces to it, which is there's actually there's a number of like active ingredients that we target in treatment when when we're um, uh, developing a treatment plan or or putting treatment in place, we're actually, actively targeting um, things that we think are keeping the client stuck. So there is a, a much more active component than, than what may be depicted. And that could be surprising for clients, actually, that could be surprising for people who refer to us. So I think there's a an educational piece to in terms of societal in terms of what effective therapy looks like as well. And so myths around that as well.
0: Connie, I wonder too, like, you know, the therapy, especially if it's being accessed in a private practice setting is not cheap. You know, it, there's a, there's a significant financial outlay if people want to participate in that particular model. How much do you think that the benefit, the, the way that benefits are currently shaped influences the service or the help seeking that uh, people uh, undertake?
1: Well, yeah, probably a lot. Um, I guess in general, in general, when we think about insurance companies, they would, it would be a certain number of sessions. Sessions are typically billed for an hour. Um, And that, you know, I mean, if we think of it historically, uh, I'm not, I don't have kind of a. A great understanding of this, but if we think about it historically, when all of our treatment models were are evaluated from a research perspective, it is based on that model, right? You deliver, I think if we think of CBT anyway, you deliver treatment for 12 to 14 weeks and it's an hour each time. And that's kind of um, that, that one hour a week is kind of the model that we've based our treatment models on. So I think probably from an insurance perspective too, it would make sense to Follow that same way of reimbursing for services, and so it's probably a, an important piece.
0: I think it really shapes clients' uh, willingness to engage in the process as well on some level, right? I think there's a perception that there's value in it as long as my insurance company is paying, but if it goes beyond what the insurance company is is willing to uh, to pay for, then the value, the perceived value, can drop precipitously. Right. And of course, there can be financial pressures, right? Like, I I totally get it. it. It would be very difficult for someone to pay for therapy out of pocket. Although there are other perspectives, right? You can look at that cost as an investment as opposed to just purely a cost, right? Like, what is the cost of quality of life? What is the cost of contentedness? You know, what is the price of return to work look like relative to the cost of therapies? Right. Just as a really interesting little fact, one of the groups that we're chatting with around you know, some of the, the innovations that we're going to talk about later, Ford has a stat where the, the extent to which people use their benefits is proportionate, no surprise, to the amount of benefits that they have available. And the idea is that if someone has $500 of benefits uh, available to them, they don't often even bother using them because they're, they're sort of like a what's the point right? I'm going to get maybe two and a half sessions out of that. As people have higher envelopes of funding available, they will use the therapy more. But I I think it's really difficult to talk about these innovations without also considering how the insurance landscape is structured and how the two systems plug into one another. And yes, there needs to be accountability. I understand insurance companies don't want to cut blank checks for people, but we need to really understand these dynamics if we're going to be able to implement some of the uh, innovations that we'll get to shortly.
1: Yeah. No. That's yeah. Those are excellent points. So, Connie, just to follow up on what
0: we were talking about a second ago, I, I think it would be really helpful if we could talk maybe together about the emotional experience of working in the system that we've described. And again, just to summarize, of a system of finite resources, high demand, very little ability to intensify services, uh, very little access to community or publicly available. Uh, services, people are often coming to us because we're sort of a a last resort essentially that they have to end up sort of paying for and society is not uh, providing the service. So what, what in your experience, what is the emotional toll um, that that you've noticed either for yourself or, you know, interfacing with folks who you work with? And certainly I can provide some reflections as well, but yeah, what's your, what's your reflection on that?
1: I think that's, that's actually a really great question. And once you've been in Once you've been in the mental health field for, you know, for me, 14, 15 years, it starts to I think there can be a lot of wear and tear. So we all I it it does. It does sound a little bit like a stereotype when you when you think about it. But I I think that most of us, when we go into um, mental health field, we're doing it to help people. And so I think that kind of drives a lot of 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 what we're doing and why we're doing it. So when you, and I could speak to this for both kind of the public and the private um, spheres, what you come up against almost daily is people in need of services. And um, the need is, like I said, really, really, really high. There, There's always, you know, wait lists and uh, people requiring services that you actually don't have. In a public sector. it may be that, you know, there's only a certain number of sessions and then people get streamlined out or there's there may or may not be therapy options available to somebody. So they may only get a piece of treatment in the private sector. It's, it's around um, what we were talking about earlier. There's limited insurance coverage. It's the insurance coverage may only cover a few sessions where the person might require, you know, four months of treatment. And so you're coming against or coming up against this issue repeatedly really is how do you provide, uh, the best services you can to the most people that you can as effective as you can. And I think that um it can be it can be really demoralizing, I think, over time. The people that sometimes would benefit the most are the people that don't have the resources to actually get services. so that kind of can eat you up over time. People respond in different ways, of course, for some people, and you know I've seen this myself, I felt pieces of it myself is you start to work harder, you start to work more hours, you start to um, provide services at lower fees, which is great, but you also need to kind of keep your practice going, right? So these are, they're not salaried positions. So there's these financial demands as well. And you try to help as many people as you can, but over time it's not sustainable because the need is always higher than what you can do. And I think that that can be demoralizing and it can lead, lead people to become very burnt out really. Um, which is probably the same in many different disciplines, right? Our areas, but for certain in in a mental health field, if we, if we try to just do more within an existing system that has flaws in it, then, you know, you can easily get demoralized.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And that's been my experience as well. Again, not uniformly, but certainly experienced pieces of that. I have often felt, especially with those higher intensity cases, especially where there's suicidality involved, and you don't really have any sort of clear avenues that you can activate or leverage to help assist the care and you're really kind of managing something on your own that can be incredibly complex and very distressing and kind of chronic and ongoing. Uh, it can definitely lead to a sense of helplessness and, and frustration and, and cynicism. Um, uh, you know, like you yes. start to think, should I even bother sending this person to the hospital, even spending an hour writing a letter before you send them. And, um, you know, yeah. that they're just going to, they're going to get a, uh, a sample pack of Seroquel be turned around and sent out the door. And again, that you you probably hear the cynicism of my take right there, but that that's the kind of perspective that ends up sort of bubbling up eventually. And of course you do send the person regardless, just because you do want them to access the help that they need in that particular moment. But you know, that you know, your intentions are not always going to be able to map onto what the system's able to provide. And I hate those conversations with clients where you have to come clean with them about the, the limitations of the system. It's like we're doing what we can. It's insufficient, but it's, it's what's available at, at the moment. And it's, uh, it's so invalidating of their experience uh, of really, you know, experiencing a lot of pain. And it's like society doesn't really, uh, doesn't really care in any sort of tangible way.
1: For a psychologist, if we take it to like someone providing treatment and you go through, a, you know, extensive training around how to, you know, uh, help people live healthy lives, how to manage kind of emotional issues as they come up. So when when you yourself are experiencing some of these emotions and these difficulties, I think we can often um, think, well, I shouldn't be, I should be able to manage it better. Um, you know, I'm trained in this area. And so I think it also, and and this may not be, uh, I think it's maybe a societal expectation that therapists would be, you know, really always healthy and be able to manage these difficulties as they come up. But we're like, we're human. And um, in the same way that everybody else can struggle with different anxiety and mood related pieces that come up, so can a therapist. And especially in a context where you feel like, you're trying the best you can to help people. And, and, um, and the system sometimes itself feels like it's going against you, right? There's not the resources. So there's that piece too, is like the, the making sure that we're okay um, as therapists as well, when we're providing, when we're providing treatment and how, how the system right now kind of sometimes can make that difficult and our own, our own expectations of ourselves and how we manage difficulties and how we should or shouldn't be able to, to deal with, hardships that come up and those are things that we have to navigate as well
0: yeah i like that joke welcome to private practice where you treat yourself worse than any boss ever would right (laughs) (laughs) right like we
1: yeah and i mean it's no surprise we also all you know if if you're if we're talking about psychology or clinical psychology we've all done phds we went through graduate training and graduate school like we have typically if i maybe this is a stereotype but pretty high expectations and standards for ourselves, And so when you are sometimes faced with the reality that you can only do so much and um, you're, you're trying your hardest to kind of do as much as you can in that context, then of course your own vulnerabilities can get triggered as well. And, and then it's so important that there is resources available to mental health providers too. I mean, in the context of COVID, even probably more so, right? If we kind of widen that out.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. This came up on another podcast that uh, with another clinician, and we talked about how most of us, when we start off, grapple with that tug of war with control, right? Like we were used to being able to execute problem solving, and you get the desired result. And clinical work doesn't necessarily go that way. And most of mm-hmm. us have to practice, I'm going to say, uh, let's say five to 10 years, reach a bit of a breaking point with respect to that paradigm before we'll migrate over to more of a, let's say almost a, an acceptance and commitment kind of model or, or, or process yeah. that we apply towards our, uh, our practice. Because that control model simply just collapses under its own weight over time when you come to really appreciate the forces at play that we're up against and the size of the, uh, the gap between what people need and what we can provide at times.
1: Yeah, I think the c- control is a is a really way good way to kind of see this because we we can do a lot, right? We can we can do a lot. People do get people do get better. I don't want this to sound like people don't get better and they don't get good services. That that happens. Um, but we are right now talking kind of about the limitations in the system and how it can impact us and the need for innovation. So, in that perspective, that is the reality, is is you come face to face with these limitations and from a control perspective perspective, I think that's important. It's it's learning um, what you do have control over, what you can make better. And then it's also learning to kind of um, let go and uh, let go of the things that you can't and find ways to navigate that as well and, and manage it from an emotional perspective. And that's as relevant as it is for a client coming in for therapy as it is for a therapist. They're the same types of issues that we were navigating.
0: Honey, I wasn't quite done holding the pity party for us yet, but that's the... <laughs> 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 but, but that's such a great point, right? It's sort of, okay, let's give up the, just like with a client, right? Let's give up the fantasy or illusion that we can control everything and things are always going to go the way that we can, And we'll substitute an unworkable fantasy for workable reality, which is, okay, what's left over? What can I actually deal with? And then the actual solutions will emerge, right? So struggling against impossibilities, well, it's just going to lead to struggling against impossibilities, but working with what actually can be modified is incredibly important. And that will give people energy. It will give them motivation. And and again, we're going to get to some of our, I think, perspectives around this, but Connie, I know that for myself as a as a clinician in private practice, and this is going to build on some of the things we've been talking about. It has at times been a difficult journey to wrap my mind around providing a health service within a fee for service environment. It's certainly not my human reflex, but you know, there's also other reflexes that I have to be attuned to, like paying bills and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it creates all kinds of interesting tensions that need to be managed. I think of you know managing no shows in a a constructive empathic way. Like that simple little thing is actually not so simple, and it's more art than science in, in many ways. Just as an example, so you know, Connie, as someone who wears both the hat of a psychologist as well as an entrepreneur. Can you maybe walk the listener through the the myriad of tensions that there are to navigate and how you think through resolving when there's a conflict in values? Because I think ultimately that's what it boils down to, right? We You hold yeah. different values, yeah. they're in conflict, and we had to find some way of knitting them together where we're, we're doing the most amount of good with the least amount of, of harm to ourselves or other folks.
1: Yeah, I think that to think of it as a values-driven um, issue, I think that's really relevant because... And I think it's 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 almost anybody who comes over into private practice from hospital based practice or even just starts uh, starts their their clinical work in a private practice setting is it feels very odd for some for someone to come in for you to offer to to listen to the person, of course, provide support um, and then, um, you know, kind of start treatment with them. And then when they leave, when you first start this to actually ask them to pay for their session, (laughs) it's it's. um, The way we're trained, the way we we kind of go through our preparedness, I guess, to become psychologists, we don't do a lot of, we don't speak a lot about this. We don't speak a lot about this financial piece of it. Um, We don't speak about how difficult it's going to be to charge somebody after the end of a session. We don't speak about how we are a profession like any other profession. And um, just like you would think of if you go to see a dentist or you go to see uh, another professional, um, the, the, services are paid for and i think we often have to navigate or we have to wrap our mind around this concept in a way that feels it, it is consistent with our values of wanting to really help people get better when they're suffering and um and to do that in a way that's going to be really effective but you're you exa- the competing tension is that um well there's so many competing tensions with this but but you also have to pay for your rent and your bills and the staff that you have hired to provide services and for the groups that you're offering at lower cost to kind of meet some of those needs. All of those things need to be paid for, and at the same time, you're navigating the fact—the reality of it—is uh, that the person is suffering, and and that um, and that you're providing treatment for somebody in that context. And and sometimes the those 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 competing tensions can really feel conflictual. Um, and uh and maybe I don't know if it's in particular for psychology or not. Maybe it's across any mental health profession, but for some reason we see this as very different from other from other professionals who are providing things. Like, I keep saying dentists, but I'm trying to think like accounting services. Dentist it feels very, very different. Um, maybe because of the vulnerability that a carry that a client carries with them when they come in and they open up to you. And um and typically conversations and support or you don't in general in society you don't you don't pay for those things so I, I'm not sure exactly what all the where the all the competing tensions come from but I know that it is a struggle for most of us to come up with a system that feels like it's consistent with our values but also can help us continue to To make a living and to pay for the things that we need to pay for as well.
0: I have a pet theory around that phenomenon that you're describing. And I think because the therapeutic alliance is so central to the work that we do, you know, it's really, it's really a tool. Uh, Again, I think most psychologists are quite personable people just in general and and like connecting with other humans. But, you know, what what clients may not always be aware of is that forming that therapeutic alliance, as much as it's authentic and genuine, there's also very much a mechanistic aspect to it as well, where we really want to have a strong alliance with the person in order to to do the good work that we want to do with them. And I think ultimately, it can be confusing both for us and it can be confusing for them. Right. It's, it's almost kind of like, you know, it's almost like behavioral activation, right? Where if you act like a depressed person, you feel like a depressed person. If you act like someone who's not depressed, you're less likely to feel that way. If you act, I'm going to use this term very loosely. If you act like you're friends with somebody, Mm -hmm. right, you're going to feel like you're friends with that person. And it's going to make it very difficult in some instances to do the things that you need to do in order to move the person, uh, you know to give the person the service that they are that they are actually asking for which is to maybe to be confronted around a problem or to help them see around a corner that they're having difficulty with so i think for a lot of us who are very agreeable and and maybe conflict averse in some ways the the therapeutic alliance is is difficult to navigate because it's so powerful and it's if it's powerful enough to help it's also powerful enough to hurt and we need to be yes. very attuned To those dynamics. So I'm not sure what you think about that, but reflecting on it a lot, I I feel that that's a real challenge for a lot of us to, to navigate and for clients as well. But they're just it's unbeknownst to them how much that's weighing into the interaction.
1: That's right. Yeah, no, I think that probably. Yeah, I think that 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 connectedness feeling and that knowing the person so well is probably so very connected to this this discomfort with or this having to navigate that issue around, around payment and around the the, the issues we're talking about, mispayment fees and things like that. And I think the, the idea of, um, I think that's why, and we talk about this so much in psychology with boundaries are so important and the difference between this type of relationship and a friendship. And that can be very confusing for someone coming in for treatment for sure. And that's why, um, and and for psych and for therapists at times, right. Is like, How is this? This this is different. These are what the boundaries are. This is the the role that I play as a therapist. These are the active kind of techniques that I'm going to use to help the person kind of move forward. And that's actually something I'm delivering that in in a professional way. And that is different from a friendship or a relationship. But while you're doing this, you're navigating all of those issues that come up, right? Because we're all human as clients are um, navigating that issue. And so I think that adds to that complexity And that's why our our boundaries and are so very important. And also just our own (laughs) self-care is so important to make sure that we're really kind of centered in what we're providing and, and living kind of a balanced life as well. So we can navigate those difficult issues when they come up.
0: I totally agree. And I think this is one thing that I try to impress upon supervisees in particular. It's like I want them to develop a vision for how the therapy should be going as opposed to simply reacting to what's coming up. Because it's very mm-hmm. easy if you're anxious or tired or, you know, ill-prepared or whatever, simply to react in the moment and creating consequences that you may have to undo later, right? So I think having a vision of the boundaries, a vision where your lines are up front is, uh, is, is really, really important. I think, I think this is somewhat related, but Connie, based on your experience, you know, what do you see as typical responses among mental health care providers to some of the, you uh, system level frustrations, uh, that we're all confronted okay. with, what are some of the patterns that people end up falling into as a function of, you know, working in the system that we work in?
1: Yeah, I think that that one piece we were talking about in terms of demoralization and feeling kind of, uh, and getting, um, exhausted, um, overworking. Uh, I think that's one response, one reaction that probably all of us go through. I mean, really, um, at maybe not everybody that's really a generalization, but you know, there's phases you go through as you're a developing therapist. And I think that may be one all, all, a lot of us have gone through, um, trying to meet the needs uh, that are not meetable by one person, right? By one, with, within a system that doesn't have everything in place the way it needs to be. Not that anything's perfect, but where there's a lot of lapses. And so one would be that that feeling kind of exhausted, burnt out, overworking. I think that kind of comes up um, as a response. I mean, in some cases, it's also you could kind of shift probably the opposite way, which, which I've seen to seen as well is um, too far the opposite way in terms of just accepting the way it is um, and kind of disconnecting so much from it that you're not really a part of it the way you would need to be. So I think there there can be that kind of response as well is um, it's just a job like like any other job and. And not that it's different from any other job, but just having being too far from it. I think I don't know if I'm wording that. If that makes sense, but kind of disconnected from the the real the 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 reality of it. I guess. Or
0: yeah, I, th- I think I, we can conceptualize it almost like as a fight, flight, or freeze response. Yeah. When resources are depleted, when stress levels are high, we're going to go back to these stereotyped, not very sophisticated ways of coping, which often really amounts in some way or some way or another, just doing what we've always done right? Because yeah. it requires the least amount of energy. It, it's, it's an, it's a known, even if it's bad, you know, we'll accept a known known rather than an unknown, uh, almost just like our clients, right? Like we're, we're all humans and uh, it's, you know, when stress is level is high and ambiguity is high and uncertainty is high that those are not conditions that foster creativity. That's not the time that someone's going to typically pick up a, a new manual or develop new programming. They're going to double down on what they know because that's, what's going to keep them stable. But it's it's a self defeating uh, behavior in many cases, often.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and in some cases, people choose to do what. And I think this is pro- this can also be done in a healthy way. Like you, you choose to do what you can in the context of the system you're working in, and you do a good job within, and you have kind of appropriate boundaries for yourself within that 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 role. And it's not that that's um, a negative thing. I think probably most people in society function, we function that way probably, right? Not everybody is going to go out and identify a social problem and then try to fix it or try to find different innovative strategies to kind of make changes. But I guess that's the the other response, right? Is, um, is to um, identify uh, the issues and the discrepancies in terms of values and then use that to kind of leverage yourself in in helping to make change and I don't think we're that I think in mental health we're maybe behind other areas with that you know we're not we're not as ahead as in other areas where where there's more innovation in place and there's more development in place and I don't know that we've actually there's been a lot of entrepreneurial kind of leadership in the mental health area I don't,
0: Yeah. Do do you have any, and and with the caveat, this could be pure speculation. uh, Do you have any sense of why that might be? I have an idea that popped in my mind, but I I was wondering if there's anything that's been on your mind with respect to what, what are barriers to innovation within psychotherapy?
1: I wonder if, if um, I don't know what you think about this, but if you think like it, So someone who goes to because what we're what we're talking about right now is is the other uh, an adaptive response to the system problems. Right. Another adaptive response, an adaptive response to this to this problems in our system. It would be, um, like I said, identifying what those problems are and then using really creative, innovative ideas to improve uh, the situation from a social stance. Right. And 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 using whatever skill sets you have to do that but I think I know from a psychology perspective in terms of training that is not something that we are we're not trained um, maybe that's changing I haven't been in school for a while now but we're not trained from a business perspective from a um, from from that kind of uh, frame of reference in the past anyway that wasn't kind of the the frame of reference we would take as you know how do you uh, we have a lot of skills that can be leveraged to make social change, but it's not something we were ever exposed to. And then if I think about from a business side where all the business and our entrepreneurial kind of leadership comes from, I don't know how much experience or knowledge they would have about mental health difficulties, right? Like they're two kind of separated silos almost. And um, because we're we're so kind of maybe not as much as in the past, but, Not backwards, but behind in terms of our understanding of what mental health is. And um, then someone who is in kind of from a business frame of reference might not actually have that frame of reference to move into the mental health field and make positive changes either. Right. It's kind of the, the, the two pieces that I think are important for social innovation.
0: Yeah, I think those are great points. And our profession is pretty conservative by nature for, I think, a lot of good reasons. But there's there's not an ethos of of sort of, um, let's say, business acumen about the undertaking, right? Like, I mean, we're barely sort of allowed to advertise in the yellow pages. You know, there's, there's, yeah. there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of expectations yeah. about how we will present ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting we, you know, we turn into sort of ambulance chaser style lawyers and put up billboards. Like if you go to any major center in the United States, you just see you know uh billboards everywhere for for law firms for personal injury and stuff like that I'm not suggesting we go in that route but i I do feel we could probably stand to loosen up a little bit with respect to you know well really in the service of innovation not for any other reason right but just to sort of start to talk to business people start to talk to people in other spaces especially the the benefit space because the the rate limiting step on in, innovation that has come up for me is is basically what's the, what's the market size available? What's the pool of resources available to fund programming? Yeah. And yes, there's a lot of inefficiencies that could be remedied, but uh, is there enough money in the system to be able to fund the kind of innovations that would make sense if, if resources were no option or so we're, we're, uh, were no uh, obstacle. Of course that will never be the case.
1: No. Yeah. But,
0: but perhaps it could be better.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, 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 that makes sense. I think we're, we're not trained to think that way, um, in terms of kind of an innovative frame of reference, and we are very conservative. Like, like you said, I think for good reasons, um, we're we're really kind of guided by ethical principles and standards, and that's how we navigate. But I think we've maybe um, one doesn't mean you can't do the other, and I don't think that you know, like being ethical and. And, and having very clear standards in our practice don't mean that we cannot develop uh, and, and be entrepreneurial as well. You know, both can go together. And I think we have not necessarily traditionally been re- really known how to do that. How do you kind of merge those two worlds and um, in a way that's going to really help leverage our training so that we can make social change, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a response to the 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 limitations in our system and how there's a lot of people going without the treatment they need and the frustrations around that. And the fact that there is often in certain places, there is not the adequate treatment available. And to be able to offer that in a way that you can given kind of financial limitation takes a lot of creative thinking and innovative skills and business kind of entrepreneurial skills and background, I guess.
0: I really want to get a as much of an honest reflection as I can from you around this. If I was to be honest, watching my own reaction to the rollout of ICBT everywhere, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to watch my own internal reaction. Where I think I've both been very skeptical and kind of judgy about it, but it, but then at the same time, it's like. I think this is in part the future, right? Like, you know, this, this distribution model at the very least is probably going to be the way that where, where psychotherapy goes. So I've noticed both my own sort of cultural entrenchment coming up, but then also trying to step outside of that really be open minded. And I, do, I, I don't think that ICBT is going to end up being this panacea that solves everything. It will be one layer of the cake and it will be a very important layer, but it's not the whole recipe. So Connie, I'd love to know, yeah. like, what's your reaction been? I guess it's very open-endedly to watching ICBT kind of wash ashore in the way that mm-hmm. it has been.
1: We we talked earlier about how this is this one size fits all kind of mentality. So I think in one way, my reaction has been okay, is this another example of one size fits all? And this is the solution to everybody's concerns, right? ICBT doing a course of, of treatment this way is going to kind of fix the, the issues that we're experiencing as a society around increases in anxiety and depression. And so part of my response has been, okay, this is good because it's increasing accessibility, right? Like for a group of people for ICBT who are experiencing mood and anxiety problems and, and I think their sleep, programs for sleep issues and stuff, it increases accessibility. The reach can be really far. It can be in rural areas. So it's excellent that we're thinking about it on a wider scope this way and that it's spreading but my fear is that then this is seen as okay. Now we've we've solved this problem, and now we have this solution. Whereas this is just one little small piece of the pie, right? In terms of helping with mental health difficulties, this is this is a uh, the, the you kind of kind of go through a course of treatment. Some people will respond. Some people won't respond. Some people will need higher intensity after they do a course of ICBT. Some people won't want to do ICBT. They won't have the technological uh, ability to do it. So nothing is, I guess my, my concern is there is nothing that is the, the the solution. And we go back to the complexity inherent in treating of mental health. You have to start somewhere. And this is a good, it's, it's a good place. It's a good offering to have, but to think that this is going to solve it all, that's not, um, yeah, I, 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 I would hate that that would kind of prevent further development. Right. Or, you know, if, if everybody gets this, then we've kind of dealt with the issue and that's not that's not the case. We we know that again, it's not one size fits all. People need different types of treatment at different doses for different lengths of time. And um, and we need more sophistication in how we make that determination.
0: Those are great points, Connie. And I have a funny little story that I think illustrates some of the mythology around ICBT. I think it was this past week or the week previous, and I won't name who the company was, I got an email sort of basically trying to recruit to participate in their ICBT program. And I kind of laughed at it for, for a couple of reasons. I'm like, okay, number one. I guess ICBT is just me doing what I do, but on a video screen. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no magic, right? It's, it's not like there's this yeah. magical group of therapists who have been found and activated and plugged into ICBT. It's what we've been doing yeah. forever. It's just, except <laughs> yeah. on a video screen, you know? And, and, and yeah. that is even the most sophisticated permutation of ICBT because a lot of it is sort of module-based or self-directed. So it, it kind of just yeah. goes down from what we, from there, from what we do on an, on an everyday basis. And the other thing that came up, for me, is like okay. Well, they're e- they're emailing me. That means they're short of people. Again, like there's, ICBT is not is only going to be as valuable as the system which, in which it exists. There's not enough people in the system, and ICBT is not going to invent again a whole, yeah. um, you know, population of therapists who didn't exist before overnight in order to solve this problem. So I think at yeah. the, ICBT at the end of the day is a distribution system for for what we've been doing. Forever and it and yeah. unless it has all the same dynamics around the innovations that we're going to talk about, it, it, it. I think I think that's where its value lies is mostly as a distribution system. It will only be as good as the content that's distributed.
1: Yeah, I agree. And the limitations and how far it can be distributed or how many people are. Yeah, no, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too, having practiced virtually now for about a year. I, I think I've gone through different phases of my thoughts on it. I think for some clients, it's it's a great fit. And I think for other clients, I am really missing the ability to be in the room with the person and and do the kind of work that we're doing. So it's uh, again like nothing's a panacea. It's going to be helpful for some, but uh, but but not for all.
1: Yeah, and and I think it it speaks again to the. I mean, I, I don't want to. I keep saying complexity, but you know, we're talking about one offering in the mental health system, like ICBT, for example. So it's one offering it like these things need to be embedded within a system. Right. And so who's going to benefit, how are they going to benefit? It's not, and we get back to that. It's not a simple solution. It's what is the system that's holding this? How is it being delivered? Um, Where is it? What happens if the person doesn't respond? Where, where are they going after that after they do this course of treatment are those systemic, systemic things in place as well. And, 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 And obviously not, I mean, it's just kind of being rolled out now, but that's an important piece to think of. What is the system of care? Not just what happens after the person ends? Are they, is there some kind of connection to another service? You know, um, those are also important things to consider. But again, on the other hand, increasing access, we need to start somewhere. So, you know, how do you pull all these pieces, the disparate pieces of what's being offered in Canada really, but let's just think of Ontario. How do you pull those all together into some kind of, system of care that's integrated in some way. And I think that's another, that's, again, we're back to kind of the, the the growth that's needed within our context.
0: Now, not to turn this into an infomercial, I think we can talk about it more at a uh, maybe abstract level, but you know, the the stepped care model is something that has really resonated with us. And, you know, we put a lot of thought into discussion about how we could leverage a model like that to address some of these uh, challenges that we've talked about Uh, And Connie, I know the step care model is something that really resonates with you uh, personally as well. Uh, Can you can you take a moment maybe just to outline what the step care model is and how it might in part address some of the challenges that we've been talking about?
1: If we take a step back and look at when we were talking about that one size fits all approach to mental health, like if we take a population of people and we look at and people who have, let's just say, anxiety and and depression will just kind of hone into those areas and we think, of this group of people, there are a number exper- of a number experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression. Thirty percent of those people might be just experiencing very mild symptoms. Thirty percent might be experiencing kind of moderate, more symptoms that are kind of more impacting their functioning. And then the top twenty percent, or, or or might, or thirty percent, might be experiencing more severe symptomatology, and they may have actually been this might be the third time that they're going through a period of depression, for example, or or have had anxiety throughout their life. And so the way the model works right now is everybody just goes to the same place. Let's do a course of CBT um, and, or CBT or even any other type of treatment. I'm talking about CBT because that's what I know the best, but um, let's do a course of, of empirically supported treatment, let's say. And that would be that once a week we come in, we do treatment. We do that for a period of time until the person that's better, and we keep trying different things until we see kind of some change. But the dose is not different; the way it's delivered might not be different. Um, it's all kind of, and and insurance companies certainly, I guess, would or provide would would not would not kind of distinguish between these different groups, right? Um, you get a certain amount of coverage, and then. And that's what you go and you get. And so some people might actually require people who, you know, the lower end, 30, 40 percent, the first time they've experienced anxiety or depression may just require ICBT, may just, be, may just require uh, a psychoeducation group, may just require a very low intensity type of approach. The middle group might require what we're talking about, that that individual kind of one on one work. And the higher group who are experiencing more severe symptoms have been through treatment in the past might actually require a higher even intensity even above that so they may need to be seen for 10 or 12 weeks but for three times a week and our system because that's the effective dose right this is what this is what's going to be needed this is what's going to be optimal to help the person move forward based on what they're presenting with and but that's not the, <laughs> that is not the way our system works and it's not the way we've kind of rolled out services before but we know that offering different you know individualizing treatment to what the, the person's needs are what their past history is and what their their mental health history is is going to be really important so i think when we think of a stepped care system what we're thinking about is that is like here's here's somebody coming in to get help what do they actually need you know not what's available and what is the What not only what's available, what's available and what's the standard way of delivering it, but what does the person actually need to get better the quickest way they can, the most effective way they can so that suffering can be reduced. And I think that that's that's the complexity inherent within the system is it's not one size fits all. It has to be individualized for the person that's coming through um, if we're going to target mental health the way we need to.
0: I'd have to go back to my history and systems textbook, which is buried somewhere deep within the recesses of my house. But do we know how we arrived at a one hour a week modality? Does anyone know? Like it strikes me as just being incredibly arbitrary and we've all just kind of gone with it probably because it's convenient. But again, like to your point in, in what other health service would we go and no matter what's going on, you get the exact same treatment essentially.
1: Right. I don't think there would be, any, right? (laughs) Like anything that's kind of research based or not based on, not based on a history of what's been done previously, what's worked and what hasn't worked, right? If somebody has gone through a treatment twice and hasn't responded, why would we offer the same thing for a third time? You know, like it doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you take a step back and look at it. And I just think there hasn't been a lot of I mean, maybe in other contexts there has been, I mean, in the UK, they have a stepped care model, right? So these things are built in. It's not like this is the first time anybody's talking about it, but, you know, traditionally that's just not the way we've done it. And in, and in Canada, um, I think we're starting to make movements in that area, but you know, if you, if you just take a step back and look at it, (laughs) you're right. What, what system, what medical delivery system would, would just give, Uh, the same thing repeatedly and see maybe if it works the third time, like, no, you know, (laughs) it's like maybe the third or fourth time will be the best way. No, it needs to be much more sophisticated than that. And, um, and, and the offerings, what we offer, the way we offer it needs to differ, right? The intensity, the number of times in the week, the why is it an hour? Why isn't it 30 minutes, three times a week where you help people put goals in place. Like there's gotta be much more flexibility built into how we're doing it. Um, and we haven't, we haven't got there yet. That's for sure.
0: Absolutely not. And I think one of the other barriers is always going to be the financial piece. And I think this is what society needs to come to grips with and what we as psychologists can start to do from an education perspective. I had a, a family member once who had a heart attack and the bill for that person being in the hospital, this was like 15 years ago for seven days was well over a hundred thousand dollars right? For seven days to address that issue, which of course was, you know, we we would never question that ever, right? Heart attack, you go in the hospital, no matter what it costs the healthcare system, you just deal with it. Now, what about somebody Mm -hmm. who is suicidal, right? Who's been chronically (laughs) suicidal, who is voicing an intent to take their own life. And we're willing to invest $6 in a Seroquel sample pack and and send them out, send them out the door, you know, like the, It's just, it's straight up discrimination on, you know, for, for a lot of different complex reasons. So society, I think needs to come to grips with the actual cost of doing business as far as it goes, uh, with respect to treating mental illness or think about the cost of a hip replacement. I have no idea what that is, you know, but you, you know, in, in Ontario, you can look that up on the web from the OHIP uh, fee schedule, but I'm going to guarantee it's more than $3,000 you know, w- w- yeah. which is the about yeah. the average amount of benefits that somebody has available for potentially a life threatening psychological illness.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are excellent points. It's, um, it's mind boggling, <clears throat> when you actually think about it that way, because a mental health issue, where there's a lot, you know, I mean, it is life or death in some cases. So it's, um, yeah, it's mind boggling, that the resourcing hasn't been put in place the way it needs to.
0: Yeah. And I, and again, we touched upon it at the beginning, but I think it's the idea of it's owing to weakness or people need to, you know, get their act together or they caught they've brought it upon themselves through bad decisions. And, you know, it's way more nuanced than that. It's way more nuanced. Uh, but, you know, it's hard for us to connect with that. And, and I mean,
1: there needs to be so much work done in this area, but, you know, just in terms of like, if we think of it purely from a, a financial kind of Societal cost perspective, the cost effectiveness, the benefit to actually providing adequate doses of treatment within our society would, over time, um, be you know it wouldn't even touch like this amount of savings would be um, unbelievable, right? If we could actually get a hold of this and do this well, um, the cost effectiveness is huge. But those those types of studies and those types of research needs to continue to happen so that the investment can be put where it needs to with, with actual correct um, models for treatment delivery, with costing connected to those accurate models of treatment delivery, so that we have the best chance of kind of helping to get people better. But then society, obviously, I mean, if we think about all the benefits to getting this even 30% under control, it's, um, you know, I don't even know how to put a, a, a price on that, right? Because the amount of Difficulty not only personal for the person personally who can't work, who can't do the things that they typically do. The cost to the to the person is 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 significant, right? The cost to society for a large group of people in this way is is really high. And if we can, you know, invest in giving treatment doses at the right dose, the right time, the right way, and have that covered, it would it would obviously make a huge impact. But it would be a huge a huge. Um, Investment too.
0: So, yeah, like two points on that. I believe the research is pretty consistent on this. But you know, around two thirds of visits to a family physician are ultimately for psychological uh, reasons, right? People present with somatic symptoms or medically unexplained things that ultimately end up sort of being um, nested within depression, anxiety, other kinds of presentations. Uh, I know if you look at the help-seeking patterns, for instance, of clients who are affected by borderline personality disorder the costs are enormous and their ability to get effective care for for actual somatic yeah. difficulties is so impaired because they get written off you know as complainers yeah. or so i'm sure there's a lot of especially women clients with borderline personality disorder who who for instance probably heart attacks are missed mm-hmm. right Be, because we don't have a framework or a narrative to capture you know what's going on they're written off sent out the door I mean, I not really. That's more of an intuition, to be fair, than actual data. But I'm sure things like this happen all the time, where mental health is bankrupting a big part of our healthcare system. Uh, you know, because we are not providing adequate dosage with respect to treatment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Connie, I think just so we can again do our part around the education piece, what would someone's journey through a stepped care system kind of look like with respect to? Maybe we can contrast this between what it would look like usually. So you, you know, someone comes in with, a let's say, moderate. What kind of presentation do we want to use as an example here? Like, Let's say like moderate OCD or something like that. Sure. okay. What would yeah. be treatment as usual versus what would that look like in the step care system just so people listening, clinicians listening can start to get a sense of the the, the mechanics and the, the look and feel of a system like this?
1: So if we use OCD as an example, let's say somebody is just starting to experiencing, uh, experience symptoms of OCD. They're just starting to kind of experiencing obsession, start to notice that they're engaging in different compulsions. It's. Starting Starting to kind of affect their life, but it's the first time they've experienced those symptoms. Um, They haven't gone through a period like that before. If we were thinking of it from a stepped care model, the idea is like, what is the minimal, minimally intrusive (laughs) kind of dose of treatment you could provide that's going to be the most cost-effective and help the person benefit the most? So you start at a at at a lower level that has a chance of succeeding. So somebody in that case, who has little comorbidity, so there's no other anxiety issues or depression issues or substance abuse issues, um, just starting to experience, they probably don't require a real high-intensity dose treatment, right? So they may actually be someone who could benefit from an ICBT and, and maybe even a little bit higher in terms of ICBT. I haven't looked at all of the research, and I think research is being collected now and when and how it's helpful, but let's just say not even ICBT, psychoeducation or... Um, some kind of a lower intensity, a group, for example, um, a lower intensity treatment option might be um, what would be kind of warranted, but then, and, and that might be enough. And then the person goes through treatment um, and it may be, and then they they learn strategies and their symptoms kind of reduce and they get back some of the functioning that they've lost. And um, and then we we help them Set up a plan so that if they start to notice that there are symptoms escalating again, they know what to do so that it can be preventative because we have to think about prevention too, not just treatment um, prevention in the long term. And if you can help somebody earlier at that lower level of intensity and then put prevention strategies in place, that's that's huge for the person. Right. Those patterns aren't entrenched. And it's not re- repetitive. It may not have the same impacts in terms of functioning or life consequences. But now if we kind of move forward, so that would be the lower intensity. If we move forward, though, and let's say somebody comes to us who's who's been diagnosed with OCD and they've went through and they've had OCD for seven years, let's say and they've gone through, and and it hasn't really, maybe it has waxed and waned to some degree, but the symptoms have almost always been present. They've went through two or three different treatment trials in the past where they've tried to get OCD treated. Maybe they've done it using CBT or exposure ERP, which is kind of the gold standard. and um, And that hasn't worked as effectively. It helped a little bit. So that person coming in, and who, who is functioning is really impacted. They can't leave the house as much. Um, their family is having to help with kind of the daily activities. They have depression as well because they've been, their functioning has been impacted. Maybe they haven't been able to work for a few years. Social relationships have been um, impacted. That, that person, you know, the, the, the flaw in the system right now is that person right now would get the same type of service as the other person I just described. Right once a week, let's come do this in low intensity and we would and see if this works. But that person's already done that, (laughs) they've already gone through that treatment and it's helped a little bit, but it hasn't. So, for that person using a stepped care model, we'd look at all those variables, we'd look at the number of treatment trials they've had before, we'd look at Um, uh, comorbidity, what other types of mental health issues they have, we would look at their overall functioning level. We'd look at risk in terms of suicide. We'd look at social support systems. We'd look at family involvement um, as well in terms of what kind of they have around them. And then we'd use those variables to determine what actually is going to help. What, What do we need to put in our treatment a proposal for this person that has the best chance of succeeding. Right. And it's going to be more than the first client I just described. It's not going to be one-on-one uh, or even just psychoeducational kind of information about it. It's going to be more intense. It might be an individual therapy per week. It might be a coach session to practice the strategies we're going to teach the client. It might be some group work so that we're offering different modalities around kind of enhancing motivation, um, Values driven kind of principles that are in place so it can increase the motivation around meeting, you know, goals that they want to meet. And uh, maybe telephone coaching and family would be involved as well. So in this case, it might be a proposal that we see the client for four to five times a week, you know, maybe four hours a week, five hours a week, higher intensity. And we map that out for 12 weeks, the same course. Length of treatment, but more intense and more adequate dose for what the person is experiencing, maybe with an OT involved so they can increase functioning. And then after those 12 weeks or during those 12 weeks, we're monitoring the whole time to see if treatment's actually leading to change, right? And either intensifying or taking things out if it's not needed, if treatment is working. But those two, we may be using the exact same models in terms of what we're targeting in treatment for in in the first case and in the second case. But in one case, we're intensifying enough to try to help kind of uh, increase momentum so the person can benefit from the dose of treatment. So that would be, I don't know if that's maybe a long-winded way to describe um, those two different examples, but the idea is, is, is considering all of this history and past treatment trials and then individualizing treatment to the person and offering something that has the best chance of success. Because, you know, the one thing we want to avoid um, is is offering an inadequate dose and then somebody goes through treatment and at the end of it, they think I failed. You know, "I, I failed, treatment doesn't work for me. But is that, you know, so often what we see is people will come in with that idea, that's it. I I failed. Treatment doesn't work for me. I'm not treatable. And they haven't even got a gold standard treatment for the problem that they're that they're dealing with. And so it's um, and once a feeling of, you know, helplessness or 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 failing kind of sets in, that's another thing you now have to try to help the person overcome. Right. So I think it's really important to consider that when um, when we're moving Forward with what type of treatment we're going to offer.
0: It's funny, if I was to take a step back and listen to us talk about this, it would be like, yeah. oh my God, this is so obvious. Why is this not, yes. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. of course, the more severe treatment yeah. or, or the more severe difficulty yeah. that you have, the more intensity of treatment you're going to get. Like, why is this considered an innovation, you know, in a way? I know, Yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: yeah, actually, when, when you actually just let your right, when you listen to it, you're like, well, of course, what other field wouldn't you do that? You know, like if it's more severe, do a higher dose like it's maybe that speaks to the stereotypes and the myths about mental health.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think, again, those those financial structural barriers as well, right, where the insurance companies, uh, you know, they have a certain model in mind. And, and traditionally, we have to map onto that to make our business models work. And I think, you know, through discussions like this, I'm hoping that we can maybe, again, open that door even more with respect to opening people's eyes about the way we should be doing things uh, just yeah. because we should be doing it this way. Like, if I had a yeah. family member coming for treatment, this is this is what I, I'd want the kitchen sink thrown at them, you know, uh, if, if, if required.
1: If it was needed, yeah. yeah, right. If required, like, if you don't need that, then of course, and that's the real problem here. If we're putting, if we think of like standard, insurance packages, for example, or, you know, everybody gets $2,000, but like client one, let's say doesn't need $2,000. They need like, they need uh, ICBT, a course of ICBT or something that's less kind of intensive. Whereas client B needs $4,000 or $5,000. And so it's, um it's not that again, we come back to that one size fits all. It's not um, people are at different stages in terms of what they're experiencing, require different things. And we don't yet have that mapped
0: out. Yeah. And I certainly don't have the financial skill set to be able to do this, but I'd love to know if step care versus treatment as usual, is the area under the financial curve ultimately the same? It's just that it's distributed yeah. differently to, to different people. Cause if that's the case, then, you know, that, that would be amazing. And I think, uh, I, I gave a, uh, a, a, just a fun little talk to my daughter's class yesterday about mental health. She's in grade six. And I was just thinking, you know, without trying to get at all grandiose about it, but it's like, if that little half hour talk might have nudged one of those kids 1%, you know, their trajectory with respect towards proceeding towards a mental illness, like there, there's a massive value in those early interventions, let's say, right? So again, that was just more of a thought experiment. I'm by in no way implying that my talk was magical and save the world, but, (laughs) but the idea is like, you know, the, the golden goose here is that if we can do a $200 intervention upfront. Yeah, once and some, with someone very early, yeah. then imagine what the downstream inca- impacts could be. So again, that prevention piece that you mentioned is huge, but we also need to be able to predict who's going to benefit from that intervention as well.
1: Yeah, and we also don't we don't think. Gen- I mean, generally, we see what's in front of us, right? We're like we we see what's immediate. So that preventive prevention piece is we're kind of short sighted. It's like if we do something now, 20 years later, like if we did a huge, if there was a huge kind of um, endeavor around prevention and education and targeting and things that you know, what would be the impact 20 years from now? But we don't, I don't think we have that mindset of looking at 20 years from now and all the cost savings and the, the, you know, life satisfaction, the differences for people um, we might not look at it that way. We look more right at what's in front of us, which is part of the, problem personally for people, but also just societally, right?
0: Exactly. There's a book that I have upstairs. It's called Warnings, I believe. It's by uh, Richard Clark, who worked in this and uh, the National Security for uh, United States in some capacity. In any case, his point in the book is that it's very difficult for humans to avert disasters, even when there's good data and one of the reasons is that you don't get credit for when the bad thing doesn't happen. Yes. Right. So if you, when you prevent something, it's kind of like, you know, it it doesn't resonate the same as if you save the day once the bad thing has already happened.
1: Yeah.
0: Prevention isn't very sexy, right? Like it's like, you don't see like, just like you're saying, you're not seeing that dramatic turnaround in someone who has housebound OCD.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And unless you can measure it in some way, it would, it would look in like, it would look like there was not. you don't know what you missed, right? So it would have to be kind of measured. The other thing I was going to add, Pete, when you were talking about cost, like if we compared the cost for stuck care model versus like traditional care, I think if you you can even take that down to the individual level, right? Like, Um, it's also about, so someone comes in and they have insurance coverage for a year, but it needs to be spread out, for example, or so what they would like is to do, uh, and this is a traditional model once a week for, I don't know, sometimes six, eight months. Right. So, and, um, and then if you look at the cost for that eight, nine months, or even a year sometimes, and then you compare that to an intensive program that's 12 to 14 weeks, and you compare the cost, you might actually come out to the same cost for a person, right, if you look at it. But in one case, you have a chance of succeeding. In the other case, you don't. So the more intensive, if we're talking about someone who's been in treatment in the past, the more intensive you might actually see um, it's been beneficial. Whereas if it's spread out at an inadequate dose over a longer period of time, it might actually cost the exact same thing, but not work, right? And so those are are important things to consider as well is... um, is, is, uh, is the comparison that way.
0: Yeah. The best case scenario would be a sort of smarter, not harder kind of paradigm, right? Where we're just allocating resources differently rather than having to find magical pools of money stuffed under couches that, uh, you know, we didn't know existed before, which is, you know, probably more unlikely than being able to work smarter as opposed to just keep plugging away in the same way that we've, we've been doing all along.
1: Yeah. So like reallocating, not reallocating in a smart way or the resources that are there. Where they're needed versus yeah no that makes sense yeah and it's it's also not like when we talk about social change this way you can think of it from like a government perspective or from a provincial perspective and some of the programs that are I mean there is movement there there is um you know uh, uh, in Ontario anyway there's treatment CBT treatment that's that's provided coverage for and there's real movement in terms of making that more um more making that more accessible but but. It, you know, there's also a lot of room, I think, in Canada for for grassroots kind of development for for entrepreneurs to think of ways to um, develop systems that they can demonstrate cost effectiveness and benefits and, and better outcomes for people. And I think there's tons of room for all of those if uh, if if we start to think about this in an innovative way. And think that mental health is not different from, in some ways, other areas where innovation has really kind of been launched.
0: So, Connie, that actually leads to one of my last questions here. You know, if you were providing some business mentorship to someone who was thinking about starting a private practice, and let's not worry about the market specifics, but just very generically, what do you think are the core components for building a private practice for 2021 and beyond? And how might your suggestions differ from the way that things are typically done or have been set up through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, things like that?
1: I think these things we're we're thinking about are important. One is you're going to come across this issue no matter what. You're going to be wanting to provide services and people are not going to have enough financial means for you to provide them. And the people who need it the most are probably the most likely not going to have resources, right? So when you're starting, I think it's important to think of what is your system going to look like so that you can operate a values-driven practice, still pay your bills, but do something that you think is really meaningful and helps more people than otherwise. So I think keeping that in mind would be really important. How do you do that? What, What things would you have to do? Would groups, for example, at a lower cost mean that more people could get treatment? How are you going to put that in place? So I think knowing that that's going to be an issue and how you want to navigate that right from the start, I think is important. The other thing is like psychology is not the only people that can provide clinical services. You know, like this is, this is part of that model that we have too. is um, clinical psychologist. Sure, we're, we're trained very well. Um, we go through school for a long time. We have like a lot of background in research and in clinical and clinical experience. We are not the only people that can provide therapy to people. So, you know, when you're when we're starting a, a private practice, you know, we can take as a psychologist, I can take an oversight role. I could take a supervision role. I could take a consultation role. I can train other pr- mental health professionals if they don't have the background in the models that we're using. And in this way we can leverage different resources so that we can treat more people. Um, And so I think it's it's important to also think outside the box in terms of how we typically do a a traditional private practice where it's psychology, seeing clients. Well, we may actually have a lot more movement if we can actually um, use our skills to help lead and develop and provide mentorship. And then, um, and then build that within the practice, and that might help move it forward more as well, and make it viable um, financially too.
0: Yeah, one of the great uh, discoveries of I guess the past three years has been working with other professionals uh, in a mental health care p- capacity. And seeing just the real depth of skill set that they bring to the table in areas that we are not nearly as strong in or, or just don't receive the training or, or whatever. So I think ha- I, I totally agree, like knitting together the different skill sets as appropriate, yeah. I think, is, is a real innovation. And certainly, you know, we're not the only folks that do this, but yeah. I think the more that people can avail themselves of this model, the better. One of the challenges we do Run into, however, again, and I don't want to c- continue to vilify insurance companies throughout the process, but uh, they will often sometimes not fund services uh, by some of these other healthcare professionals, uh, w- which is really, really uh, self defeating ultimately because it would save them money. You know, we're trying to, you know, I can't tell you the number of times we have tr- presented a treatment plan that is in the financial best interest of the insurance company from that perspective and it gets shot down. It's like they'd almost rather pay for the more expensive psychologist for a comparable service. It's mind boggling, but of course it's, you know, you can understand why there's reasons why they've elected to go in that direction, but it's uh, it needs, it needs to move.
1: Yeah. And there needs to be a balance, right? It's like, as we know, there are many across any discipline. I'm not, there's, there's good services and there's not so good services. And so it's like, how do you assure quality of what's being provided? And I think by, you know, by identifying specific disciplines, that's how one of the ways, that quality is, is tried to be kind of assured. Right. And um, I think there needs to be new ways to do that. And there needs to be a balance. Like we need to make sure what's being delivered is effective and targeted and done properly. And uh, that's why I think teams of professionals make a lot of sense, not just one discipline, but teams of professionals who are well-trained in each of those areas to help, especially when we're talking about intensive programs and that those are the models that can be, probably really leveraged well, even from a cost perspective.
0: No, totally agree. And I think if if there's anything also that I've learned over the past three years is that looking and learning more about the insurance landscape is that so often it's just the simple, you know, just activities are being incentivized as opposed to effective treatment. So I certainly understand the other side of the coin as well, right? People just don't want to cut blank checks so that a bunch of activity can happen. They want to see results, which is completely, completely understandable. And, you know, we would all be on the same page around that. Connie, I just wanted to give you the last word in our conversation. Is there anything that you wanted to convey to the audience that you would be of particular meaning to you or, or really important to you to get out there?
1: Just to, to summarize, I guess, is that, you know, while there are obvious kind of limitations in our current mental health system and and, um, and in the way we're delivering services, there's like huge potential for innovation and um, you know, psychology is actually really well positioned for that innovation because we're really trained in program development, and research, and being able to kind of read through um, uh, relevant literature and, and develop new systems. And I think that's just something that needs to be stressed more and more over time. Is, is how can we leverage those skills that we've been, um, you know, <laughs> embedded within during our graduate training. And and use that for these social kind of changes that we're talking about to better the system.
0: Okay, Connie. Well, I really appreciate your uh, your time today. It's been such a treat to have this opportunity to chat for almost an hour and a half. Just looking at the recorder here, it's so often that we're in a meeting and we're blasting through the agenda, and you know we're we're working through issues ten minutes at a time. Uh, I really really value the opportunity to sit down with you for a good chunk of time and and really work through some of these. Uh, important issues and I really appreciated the vulnerability you displayed around reflecting around some of the impacts that the that the job has had. I think that's so important for other people to hear. I think it's particularly important for new clinicians and trainees to hear as well. and I, I can say this and maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable, but f- just for the audience for them to know, Connie is like a four standard deviation efficient performer. So if if Connie is feeling these kind of things, I think we can be rest assured that you know it's okay if any of us feel these kind of things. So Connie, thanks for the vulnerability and thanks for your perspective. I got a lot out of our conversation today, so thank you.
1: Thanks, Pete, thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Take care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.